Tommy Martin, KSCO, Santa Cruz. Stand by. Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Today on the program, Yale University's Connie Roser Renouf. She's a researcher who's identified six different attitudes and beliefs among Americans about how global warming might affect us and what to do about it. How can we unify around an approach with such a broad range of beliefs? We'll talk to her about what her research shows over time and how those attitudes might be changing depending on the kind of information and emotional appeals people are exposed to. We'll have that discussion in just a moment. But first, we'd like to invite you uh, to write down this particular email address if you'd like to communicate with us or ask a question or make a comment. It's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. That's radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. If you look up Planet Watch, you will find us on Facebook. There you can actually see us. Hi. We're live there on YouTube, uh, streaming on our Facebook page. So if you'd like to go check that out, go to Facebook and type in Planet Watch Radio. Well, on April 28th, President Donald Trump signed an executive order to review all marine sanctuaries in the Atlantic, Arctic, and Pacific Ocean with an eye toward offshore oil drilling, which is currently prohibited by law. The Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary off the coast of Northern California is one of the largest in the system. It's 276 miles in length, 30 miles from shore, and more than two miles deep. Oil drilling is prohibited by law. How will the order affect drilling off the pristine California coastline, something which has been off limits for 40 years? Cade Pastelnik, who's going to be an intern for Planet Watch over the next few months, has this report for us now. Close your eyes. Now imagine the blissful sounds of the waves off the coast of Monterey Bay, slowly making their way towards the shore. Visualize the noise of sea otters barking up a storm and seagulls cawing to the morning sunrise. Now imagine the smell of sea salt and substitute it with the crude stench of oil and tar. That could be the fate of these endangered species if this executive order results in increased offshore drilling. Save Our Shores is responsible for the original designation of the Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary. Matt Miller, program manager for Save Our Shores, describes what would happen if these sanctuary protections were lifted. When you bring in an area for oil development, there's almost a guarantee that you're going to have some type of oil-related disaster. When you have oil covering the surface of the ocean, it blocks sun from accessing, it, it, it blocks oxygen from mixing. It starts there and then it works its way up. According to the San Jose Mercury News, Trump would be the first president to reduce marine sanctuaries since Richard Nixon. Also, according to the Mercury News, the heavily endangered sea otter population is standing at a concerning 3,272. However, the dangers of wildlife extinction don't just end with the otters. All fisheries, all marine life are impacted, starting from the smallest, you know, diatoms and planktonic organisms that live at the kind of surface of the water. If you have seabirds that are coming through, they're covering their feathers in oil. And then, you know, untold numbers of marine mammals, they're all, like, greatly impacted by oil in the environment. Nobody can really escape. In the state of California, offshore oil development is not a partisan issue. Both Democrats and Republicans have united and vowed to halt any relaxation of regulations from occurring. In addition, a Routers poll states that 59% of Californians are opposed to any drilling off the coastline. Miller claims even small changes in our everyday activity can have a huge impact. Everything that we do on land ends up flowing into the bay. That even comes down to how often we're driving or what we're consuming, you know, our carbon footprint. We just have to make sure that we're aware and we're engaged with what's going on and we're paying attention. On top of that, Matt Miller says another way to protect the sanctuaries is to become politically active. Call the office of your local representatives when you write letters, when you write emails, and when you get your friends and family to do it. 
they actually listen. Say, hey, we know what happens when there's oil drilling off the coast, and we don't want that here. We won't, we won't stand by that. A huge oil spill off the coast of California hasn't happened since the 1969 disaster in Santa Barbara. This specific catastrophe is what sparked the movement to better protect sea life and in place the Monterey Bay Marine Sanctuaries. If you take away the sanctuary, there's a statistical guarantee at some point. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Whether it's four million gallons all at once, like in 1969, or a million gallons, that oil spreads out and it can, can do a lot of damage. This is like one of the greatest spots for marine science research in the world. So to have an oil company come in and threaten all that would be pretty bad. Ryan Zinke, Interior Secretary for Donald Trump, has been sent to review the sanctuaries and report back within six months. However, California lawmakers are not sitting on the sidelines and waiting for the results. According to the Mercury News, State Senator Hannah Beth Jackson of Santa Barbara pledges to introduce legislation that will prohibit the State Lands Commission from approving any offshore oil construction. Cape Estonic reporting in for Planet Watch. And we thank Cade Bastelnik for that story. We have more news for you on Planet Watch. And then in just a moment, we'll be talking with Connie Rosa Renouf. She is a Yale and George Mason University researcher who's done quite a bit of work into how attitudes about global warming have changed over time and what that means for getting a handle on the problem. What's in the news, Tommy? What do you got for us? We've got a story from NASA today, and it's about how humans are not only affecting weather on Earth, but in space as well. Scientists at NASA have detected an artificial bubble of low-frequency radio waves around Earth that they believe is affecting particles in space. With frequencies between 3 and 30 kilohertz, they cannot carry audio, but are instead used to communicate coded messages long distances, like to submarines deep below the surface of the ocean. The very low-frequency signals interact with particles in the radiation belts, affecting how and where they, where they move to create a bubble which actually protects the Earth from natural radiation like solar flares. NASA hopes with further study, very low-frequency transmissions may serve as the way to remove excess radiation from the near-Earth environment, which is pretty exciting. So it's not the radio waves we're making right now. It's <laughs> low-frequency waves, just to be clear, and maybe there'll be a slightly uh, positive impact of that, and we don't know. So it's one of those stories that maybe what we're doing is actually helping us. <laughs> yeah, just a little commentary on that for you. Uh, this is Joe Jordan, by the way, who just joined us. Thank you for coming. blew in from the beautiful day out there and the traffic. Um, these extra low frequency or very low frequency waves, you may have noticed that, you know, when somebody's playing music, when you're trying to sleep through the walls of your apartment or whatever, you hear just the low frequency stuff. Low frequency long wave waves are the ones that make it through stuff. And in particular, these waves are being used to communicate with submarines that are underwater. And as you probably know, light doesn't go very far through water. Light is very short wave electromagnetic radiation, but these are very long waves, so they're used to communicate with submarines. Anyway, a little bit of background for you. All right, um, we have Connie Rosarinoff on the line. We're going to go to her in just a moment. Uh, she's calling in from the East Coast. Um, but Joe Jordan has one short item he's going to share with us very quickly before we go to that interview. Yeah, well, okay. There's ice. Uh, no, this is not news. There's ice in Antarctica. No, this is news. There's moss in Antarctica now, especially on the Antarctic Peninsula, which is the part that extends the farthest from the heart of that icy continent. And um, for real Antarctic nerds, even that's not news. There's been moss there for a while, like, you know, 50, 100 years, but it's really thickening and getting a lot greener now which, by the way, is going to have a very important side effect. It's going to make the surface of that continent darker, less reflective, which does what? <laughs> that absorbs more solar radiation, enhancing that same effect in what we call a positive feedback. So um, this story has just kind of broken in a, in a journal called Current Biology. And we'll just have to, I, I guess we only have time to give you a quick teaser tidbit of another, what I think is a huge story. The Chinese have just announced... Uh, uh, that they think they have a, a practical technology to mine vast amounts of the methane clathrates that lie on the bottom of the world's oceans and use them for fuel. But that opens up many cans of worms having to do with environment and geopolitical, you know, potential war. Like who's going to keep them from doing that and upsetting the apple cart on the Earth's climate? So stay tuned for more on that one later. Indeed. Well, I would 
like to introduce Connie Rosarinoff. She is a researcher with a very long background in many different disciplines, including communications. She um, is a Stanford-trained communications researcher. She has her PhD from Stanford. She is currently working with researchers at George Mason University to chart human reactions to information about climate change and, and their belief system as they have changed over time, which is something of interest to us here as we talk about impacting a scientific story that's unfolding and how humans are going to respond to that story, uh, understanding how and what we believe as people and how we get our information and respond to it has been quite um, an important thing. We've been talking to some other researchers about that and we'll talk to Connie now. Thank you for joining us here on Planet Watch, Connie. My pleasure. Thanks for being here. So lay out, if you don't mind, um, the basis of your research. You have these six uh, Americas defined, different attitudes. I, I guess about other scientific principles like gravity, you, you have pretty much one America. <laughs> we all believe that when things fall, gravity is to blame for them dropping um, at the rate they drop. But um, with this other scientific understanding or consensus, as it were, there isn't much public opinion consensus. Can you lay out um, those six belief systems and then how you, we'll get a little bit into how you understood them, but uh, let's start out by just laying out what you're trying to figure out and what you learn. Right. Well, we tend to think of the U.S. public as a monolith, but there's actually a wide diversity of beliefs about climate change varying levels of concern about the issue, acceptance of the science, understanding of the science, um, understanding of the harm that climate change uh, po poses can, can cause to us, and support for action on reducing climate change. And um, the research team at George Mason and at Yale um, segmented, we, we segmented the American public into six different groups that we identified using nationally representative surveys. They range on a spectrum from the alarmed group that really understands the issue, understands that we're causing it, supports strong action, recognizes that climate change can be very harmful. And at the other end of the spectrum, there, um, the, the group, um, the dismissive, are um, people who dismiss the, the threat, uh, don't think that it's real, are inclined to believe that it's a scientific hoax. And uh, between those, those two ends, there are four other segments that vary according to how concerned they are about the issue and um, how worried they are about it, how much they think about it, so that we have in the middle people who, in the middle two segments, people who never think about the issue and, and don't get that it's a threat one way or another. They're not opposed to action on it, but they're not particularly in favor of action either because it's just not on their radar. And so while we have this diversity, what we also understand is that most Americans do get it and support action on climate change, that there are many more people who recognize the threat than there are people who dismiss the threat. And you probably wouldn't realize that from listening to our politicians talk about it. But overall, in the U.S., the two groups that are most concerned about the issue of climate change um, that's almost half of the population. It's 45% are in our two groups that are most concerned about the issue. We call them the alarmed and the concerned. Whereas at the other end of the spectrum, the two groups that are least likely to be concerned about it, we call them the doubtful and dismissive, that's only one in five of the U.S. population. So there are many fewer people who oppose action than there are people who support action on climate change. So, so Connie, I got a question for you. This is Joe. Uh, good to hear you. Um, would that our so-called leaders in Congress had those had similar percentages uh, in terms of, uh, well, their um, amenability to action uh, and, you know, concern? Uh, it seems that the percentages there are, are way different, or at least the talk you hear in the media. Well, what, do you, what do you make of that? Um, yeah, it is true that it is very different in Washington from the way it is out here. Um, and... 
if I had a magic ball and or uh, a magic wand, I would change that. Um, I think there are a lot of reasons why it is the way it is in Washington that have to do with funding sources and also with um, the way that districts are gerrymandered and and that uh, that the politicians in in Washington don't necessarily represent uh, widespread public opinion across the country. Um, I think that's part of the problem. Um, but I also hear that conservatives behind closed doors feel that they have wa- uh, painted themselves into a corner and that there are conservative politicians, many more conservative politicians in Washington who recognize the threat and would like to take action on it, but fear doing so. And you just mentioned something quite important, that the fossil fuel industry, um, represented most obviously by the Koch brothers who have huge financial interest in fossil fuels, are the ones funding the campaigns of some of the most uh, active climate change, uh, let's say skeptics, but you use a different word, dismissives. Um, tell me a little bit more about this other map and how it relates to your work. There was a series of maps in the New York Times that got published. And one of the most interesting, I thought, I'd like your comment on this, was one that said, um, how much will climate change harm Americans in general and how much will it harm you personally? And the people who said it'll harm them in general was quite large, but the people who said it would harm them individually was like 36%. Um all over the country, there's only a few people who thought it would harm them personally. And this, the ones that did were living in Florida, Texas, Southern California, where there's been droughts, floods, or hurricanes, really big impacts. So um, a lot of people think it'll happen to someone else other than me, but it will happen, which is a really interesting finding, right? Because our brains don't really work very well on long-term threats. We, as humans, are wired, I think, to respond to there's a bear run, but not there's a giant climate change coming at some point in the next 30 to 50 years. You should do something, but we're not sure what. You know, that just right. doesn't really resonate with most people. They think, well, I guess I'll just keep living my life, right, till it happens. So how do you make, what do you make of this with your research? That's absolutely correct, Rachel. And we find that if we ask about a whole range of threats, how much is it threatening to you, to your family, to your community, to your state, to the nation, to the world, every step that you take away from me personally, threat perceptions go up. Threat perceptions to me personally are lowest and highest at when we move farthest away from me personally. And so as communicators, for us to talk about what's happening here and now in my community, in your community, um, when you can localize threats and help people to understand to make the connections between, say, we- extreme weather events when they occur. I mean, goodness knows for us here in California, the um, the drought and then the uh, the rains of this past year are evidence of the kinds of changes that have been predicted for climate change. And helping people to understand that brings the threat closer. But I always think about, you know, okay, let's say I'm a single mom and I've got um, small children who I'm worried about what's happening with them in daycare or after school when they're unsupervised and I'm trying to uh, pay my rent or make my mortgage. Am I going to be able to make my mortgage payment? Um, For a person in that context, you're asking me to worry about polar bears. Um, you're asking me to worry about people in future generations or in developing nations when I'm not sure I can pay my own rent. It, it's very hard to be concerned about it when you've got many more immediate concerns. Um, so I think it makes perfect sense that for many people it does feel like a distant threat. Um, but it comes, it's here now, and, uh, and the more we can help people to understand and recognize that, they may not be able to take large personal actions to reduce, um, uh, to, to reduce their own emissions or encourage other people to do so, but they certainly can support and vote for politicians who do want to take action to reduce, institute policies that will reduce climate change. Yeah, yeah Connie, along 
those lines. Let me try out something radical on you and all of us here today. Something I have not yet really heard said on the air or even seen in print anywhere, but I think it's a brilliant, if tragic, way to approach this whole issue of this communication and, you know, trying to convince people or get them to admit, if not believe, uh, that there's, uh, you know, a serious problem here and that we have something to do with it is just to ask people, tell me what you think of them. I'm trying this on for size. Uh, ask people, publicly or privately, do you care about your kids? <laughs> do you care about your kids? You know, I don't hear that. I, I think we should go around, I think we should be directly challenging. I mean, maybe not, you know, academic scientists who are, you know, analyzing all this stuff, but... But we really should be, I mean, I got cousins back east. I mentioned them last week on the show. And, you know, everybody has their cranky uncle in Montana or wherever, you know, who uh, they have debates at Thanksgiving table or whatever. Uh, but ask these people, do you care about your kids? Well, okay, how much risk are you willing to subject them to? We had this great climate conference here in UC Santa Cruz back in February. And the great uh, climate scientist Ramanathan got up and he said... You know, if I knew there was a one to t one in twenty chance that a plane I'm about to get on would crash, I would not get on that plane. And I mean, hell, we got more than one in twenty chance here. This is virtual certainty, <laughs> as certified by the world's best scientists. So, what do you think? Yeah, you know, we have asked people in our surveys if if our nation takes action to reduce climate change. Which of these outcomes do you think will will occur? And we listed both positive things like it will make a better life for our children and grandchildren and negative things like it will cause my energy costs to skyrocket. Um, and then the number one positive outcome that people in the U.S. perceive of taking action on climate change is that it will make a better life for my children and grandchildren. Um, so I think that is a really great way to talk to people about it. And, um, you know, what you were talking about, the tail risks, maybe, it, maybe it's a 1 in 20 chance that the worst will happen. But do we want to take that 1 in 20 chance? Um, you know, within the, cl the climate change communication community, there is um, diversity of opinion on how much to emphasize that. But I can tell you that um, uh, AAAS recently did a report That's the, about... Can you tell us what AAAS is for those who don't know? Um, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And um, I think it's under, on the web under what we know. Mm -hmm. And they specifically talk about in their discussion of climate change and the dangers it poses, those tail risks that you were just mentioning, Joe, and how important it is for us to keep those in mind. And Connie, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but we have a short break we're going to go to. And once we come back from the break, we have a couple of questions from uh, members of our intern community who are the next generation. And they have some questions for you about how they might communicate about this issue as uh, young adults. So we'll be right back after this short break with Connie Rosa Renouf from Yale and George Mason University talking about climate change communication. And we are also on the web. If you'd like to email us and be part of the conversation, ask a question, that's Planet Watch, Radio Planet Watch at gmail.com. Thank you. Be right back. To Planet Watch, a radio program about big solutions to planet-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm here along with Joe Jordan. 
Tommy Martin and Kate Pastelnik, our two interns, and they're going to talk to us in just a moment about how they feel about communicating about this really big topic. And to kick us off, I'm just going to give another result from one of these um, maps that's up on the New York Times and also on our Facebook page, if you go on Facebook and look up Planet Watch. Um, this says that 33% of Americans surveyed said they discuss global warming at least occasionally with friends and family, and 31% said they never do. But there are distinct regional patterns in the West, much of which has been affected by drought and wildfires. Residents are more likely to talk about climate change. New England states, and not just the liberals of Massachusetts and Vermont, talk more about it, as well as along the South Carolina coast, which we all know is not particularly Democrat uh, voting. But So it's really not a partisan issue, as is a geographic issue. Um, so we're going to talk about Connie is going to tell us a little bit more about these attitudes. And before we go to our intern's question, Connie, I wondered if you can tell me, if you don't mind, um, these six categories. Because you mentioned dismissed, and dismissive and um, the other one, which is alarmed. What's in the middle? Um, so the concerned hold essentially the same beliefs as the alarmed but they're a little less engaged. They see the threat as a little uh, more distant, and they're less likely to be taking personal action. Like the, the alarmed are really the only ones who engage in political activism around climate change. The concerned much less likely to do that, although they are likely to engage in um, consumer activism. Below that, or next to that, I should say, on the, on the, the spectrum would be the cautious who tend to believe that climate change is happening, but they're not at all sure, and it really is not on their radar. Um, they, uh, yeah, they, they don't think about it much at all, but if they do think about it, they are inclined to think it's happening, but that it has no personal relevance. Next to them, we have the disengaged group, and those are the people who never think about this issue at all, um, who... <coughs> Uh, any question that we ask them um, that has a don't know response option, that's the response they choose. They say they never think about it. They have no formed opinions about the issue at all. Next to them, the group, um, the doubtful, they are um, not sure whether global warming is happening or not, but one thing they are confident of is that if it is happening, we're not causing it because humans couldn't possibly change the climate. Okay, so we've got these six categories. We thought we'd do something interesting on Facebook and invite people to go um, to Planet Watch's page, not our group, but our page on Facebook, and tell us whether you fall into one of these six categories. One, alarmed, and get tell me if I got these in the wrong order, on the spectrum, alarmed, concerned, cautious, doubtful, disengaged, and dismissive. So there's three D words, <laughs> doubtful, disengaged, and dismissive. Dismissive means you pretty much think it's a hoax, right? That's a way extreme. But in right. between there, the, yeah. The, 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 uh, the um, disengaged and the doubtful flip the order of those. Okay. Yeah. The disengaged are, are the group that thinks least about it, whereas the doubters are more similar to the dismissives. Are there any that you could just say they're just partying till the end of time? They believe it, but they don't care anymore because they just think it's inevitable and they're just going to go drink or something. I mean, <laughs> that might you know, sound cynical, but... <laughs> despairing. There, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, I, I think that, that there are people in the alarmed group who feel that way, mm. that who believe that... Uh, we could take action to reduce climate change, but people aren't willing to, or that corporations are just too um, eager to make profits. They're not willing to change. The politicians aren't willing to give up the fossil fuel funding that they receive. And so we're not going to do it. So it's just let's go watch Game of Thrones because there's nothing we can do. And that's an attitude that we really, it's a very... Um, well, it's, a, it's a hopeless way to approach things. If you take that point of view, then, then we just throw up our hands and go home. And it's really a wrong view because there is a lot that we can do, and there's a lot that an, 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 sorry, that an individual can do that makes a difference. You talked about interpersonal communication a few minutes ago, and interpersonal communication is so important. Um, well, the... the um, 
the things that we hear from our friends and family are much more influential in changing our opinions than the things that we hear from any kind of mediated source. Okay, so we're going to go to a question from Cade Pastelnik, our intern, and we've been talking about the future and do you care about your kids? So here's some people who will be growing up into adulthood in the prime of their life um, during the really big changes that, that scientists say are coming. So, Cade, go ahead with your question. So I was actually just about to a ask a question about how important interpersonal communication was um, because I'm a communication student myself and uh, we ended the topic before the break about communication, how to get out to the public. But um, a question, another question that I do have is how do we inspire the people, especially in those inland areas in the middle of the United States who don't feel like climate change is going to critically affect them as much. How do we inspire them and get them to go out to vote out their congressmen if they view climate change as not a threat or they view it as not even a thing at all? How do we use those interpersonal communication skills and effectively change their point of view and get them to go out and vote? Well, you know that... Um with the polarization on this issue, where uh, it tends to be that liberals and Democrats are very concerned about it, and conservatives and Republicans less so, we as liberal communicators tend to frame the issue and talk about it in ways that resonate with our own values. Um, we care a lot about the polar bears, but in order to make it important to people who don't share necessarily the same values that we do, we need to look at what their values are and frame it in terms of their values. So, for example, it's a very patriotic act to protect our national parks and our water and our air. It's a matter of national security, and we know this from the generals, that when there is climate change in Africa and Asia and the Middle East, um, the droughts and famines that occur lead to conflicts uh, for resources. They lead to lots of refugees. It destabilizes the political situation. And so that's a framing that can speak to more conservative um, audiences. And another reason that many conservatives have opposed action on climate change is that we tend to talk about it, the solutions in ways that appeal to liberals, that we're going to have more government regulation. But there are conservative solutions to climate change as well that you'll hear from um, people like former Representative um, Bob Inglis, a Republican from um, South Carolina, not North Carolina. Yeah, I think it's South Carolina, who has been advocating for action on climate change. And th one of the, the um, recommendations that he makes and that other conservatives will make is we need to remove all the so subsidies that fossil fuels are receiving to create a level playing field for renewable energy. Now, that's a market-based strategy that can appeal to conservatives. So talking about it in ways that are going to resonate more with a conservative audience, that's one thing. And you can certainly and say that, that, you know, horrible weather fluctuations and huge crop losses is terrible for business. I mean, you can't plan ahead and do a, a big business plan if you don't even know um, whether that crop's going to survive a drought or whether you can even build near that ocean area. I mean, we were talking about real estate prices in relationship to sea level rise a couple weeks ago, and th this is all interrelated. There's there's no economy without a planet. I mean, that's kind of basic. That's and by absolutely the way, right, yeah. <laughs> there's that famous old saying, I first found out about it when I was a kid in the 50s or 60s. Uh, everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. Well, <laughs> well, we've been doing a lot about it, and we actually need to start doing even more about it. But look, uh, there was something you said a little bit ago that I, I guess I personally, and I would say philosophically, want to take issue with. Uh, it's a little thing, but I think you said, I'll have to go back and listen to the tape, but I think you said we as liberal communicators I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go with that label at all. As a scientist and as a person who's been involved with scientists and science for years, we need to just say, "Hey, we're not liberal. We're just calling them as we see them. We're going straight for the truth." <laughs> and so, well, anyway, but I, you know, I didn't want to make a big deal out of that. We do have a question from a listener. Joe, well, Joe can I just oh, respond sure, sure. that 
the environmental communication community, I'm thinking about the green groups like like the Sierra Club or 350.org, the National Resources Defense Council. Those are people who are engaged in climate change communication very heavily, and they do come from a liberal perspective. Got it. Yeah. We just, I think we need to play up the fact that, hey, we're doing science here. We're talking science. So, Absolutely. And uh, here's an email from a fellow named Dan, who is actually a very interesting scientist. Uh, he says, one challenge is the abstract nature of climate change to many people. We can't see the air unless it's smoggy or foggy, <laughs> nor, can we, nor can we see climate directly. Additionally, the changes we're discussing represent the standard trade-off of short-term versus long-term thinking. If somebody can have a job today and live, that weighs heavier than more future concerns, grave as they may be. Heck, look at drug addiction or alcoholism. That is short-term gain or pleasure versus long-term loss. Is there you a question things, there in that? Sorry. Well, he says we see things through small windows. I guess he's just trying to get a rise out of our uh, guest <laughs> interview person here. So, uh, But good good comment there, uh, Dan. And what do, you, what do you say there, Connie or anybody? Well, it just goes back to that example that, that Rachel gave a few minutes ago about the bear. We evolved to respond to the bear. Um, and this is more analogous to the frog in the, the water that is slowly heating up toward a boil. And we did not evolve to deal with those types of threats. But talking about the local impacts, the connections between weather events that are cr happening currently in the community and climate change, how they reflect the long-term predictions about how we're going to see change. Um, one thing that you can talk about is, is health impacts, so that we know that fossil fuel pollution has direct health effects on communities. And that is something that is an, a more immediate benefit. When we reduce fossil fuel emissions, we improve the health of our com communities. So that's one other way that we can get around that problem. But absolutely, the problem he's pointing to is one of the things that makes it so difficult to engage people around this issue. And Connie, I have another question for you. You know, with the, the division, you said that we have six categories. We have the alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, and dismissives. Um, how much energy should be spent working on the dismissives when time is a wasting and we, you know, we need to be focusing like we are trying to do on this show on solutions? What do we do about it? Not whether or not it's happening. That's a, in some people's mind, wasted breath where we should be trying to figure it out together because there's some pretty extreme suggestions of what to do about it with geoengineering and other things that come out of a sort of a feeling that it's all going too fast and these would be better done because uh, it's happening faster than we can solve in terms of the cause. So we need to deal with the effect of it and respond and adapt. So what do you say to people who say, why should we waste our breath on the dismissives? Why don't we just move ahead with those who are alarmed, concerned, and cautious, and maybe even disengaged and try to work on something we can all agree on? What do you say to that? You know, I think that that is a valid approach. Um, the, the dismissive are 10% of the U.S. population. Uh, locally, for you guys in Santa Cruz, they're 7% of the population. There aren't that many of them. But I, I, I can also say that many of the solutions, you know, in terms of renewable energy, Americans across the board, regardless of what they believe about climate change, are supportive of funding research into more use of, of renewable energy and of moving the economy uh, quickly toward renewable energy. So we can um, get support even among the dismissive if we're talking about um, uh, changes in, in terms of our increased use of fossil, uh, sorry, <laughs> fossil fuels, no, no. Of, of renewable energy and decreased use of fossil fuels. That's a really good point. Nobody would argue with a lower power bill. Not one person I know would say, hey, this is too low. So <laughs> that's something most people would agree on. And that solves the problem. If we went all renewable because they wanted cheaper power, fine. We still solve the same problem. Although it does keep some people's head in the sand about uh, the lingering effects. Because as I understand it, um, even if we started going all renewable in the next two years, 
we're going to be experiencing some pretty gnarly effects um, that are already in motion. Is that true, Joe? And yeah, it's, from- uh, I'm afraid it's it's baked in. We're we're sort of already hosed, but we can try to <laughs> minimize and mitigate that hosing and then adapt to it. And there's been this big debate in climate circles. Hey, if you talk about an adaptation, that's a cop-out. We need to do something about it and stop it and slow it down and mitigate it. That's what the word mitigate means. But look, we got to do both. We're going to have to do some serious adapting. It's headed our way, whether we like it or not, and whatever we do at this point. We just need to try to minimize it and deal with it. And I'd like to hear from um, our interns who are in their 20s. Again, uh, Tommy, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you've been listening to the show. You've been participating in it for a while. And talking about this issue on a couple of our shows, um, what messages resonate with you or resonated with you early on that you know got you interested in the topic? And what do you think you could do to get more people your age uh, fired up about this? Or are they just all already, in your sense? Not that you're a sociologist and can speak for your generation, but... What do you think about that? But I definitely do think that um, our generation has a lot more interest in the subject and seems to be already predisposed to care about climate change and really want to do something about it. So I guess it has a lot to do with convincing our parents and older people in our families would probably help us a start because they're probably the people we can communicate best with because we know them the best. And a neat story is, she mentioned Bob Inglis. There's a, a movie in which, you know, his son said, what are you doing about it, Dad, in, you know, in the Senate? And that's what switched him. I think it was his daughter, maybe. Oh, okay. But, it was uh, one of his kids said, you know, um, yeah. can I, I, I want to be able to vote for you, Dad, but... <laughs> Unless you take on climate change. And that was a personal conversation. This was a Republican South Carolina senator who, by the way, did get um, pulled out of office because of that. But um, he came back on the other side of the aisle. Citizens Climate Lobby uh, has had him at their national annual convention in D.C. And I I met him there. And great, great guy. Kay, did you want to say something about that? Oh, I just had a, a question. So... You, you mentioned that the dismissal group is, is only 10% of the population, but it seems as if the media, even the center-left media like CNN and MSNBC, they seem to normalize climate change deniers. Like whenever they're on a panel, it's Bill Nye the science guy versus some random climate change denier. How do we break that media barrier and really get through to the entire American population that they are the minority group and that the, the vast, vast majority of people actually believe that it's a serious issue? You know, it that sense of false balance that, that gets presented in the media, there's less of it now than there was a decade ago, but it's still there. And just recently, the New York Times, just within the past month, the New York Times has hired a columnist who... Um, is saying things that are not consistent with the science, and and people have pulled their um, subscriptions to the New York Times to protest it. Um, and I think that if you let the station uh, know, or the, the newspaper, whatever publication it is, that you don't want those people's views out there because they are communicating um, incorrect information that that's the best thing that we can do in order to let the, the media outlets know that we do not support having them publicize disinformation on, on the issue of climate change. And, and as a journalism instructor, and I know, Connie, you've taught this before, but that false equivalency has crept into our media quite badly where you have a debate, you know, you wouldn't have people who believe in the earth is round and over here just for balance, the people who don't. Um, That's just not what you do as a good journalist. You don't have the other side of gravity, right? So... Let's hear the positive side of child abuse. You just don't do that. Well, you know, it's kind of like the the people hear all the time from the media. The media, as you just said, needs to start hearing from the people big time. You know, we can't, we can get all fancy and wonderful and enlightened about techniques for communication. But if we're given a rigged, broken megaphone or we don't have the bully pulpit, there's, we're kind of limited in what we can do. So, you know, we're trying to slowly work on changing that with this show and things that we might inspire and help get going. We need to have, a, you know, again, let a thousand flowers bloom. We need and this stuff all over the place. Connie, do you speak with uh, professional journalist associations and get to some of the, the movers and shakers who make these decisions, the editors, for example, who are deciding on these guest choices? Do you get to interact with them at all? 
Um, I spoke last fall to, I'm forgetting the name of the, the organization, but it was the National Society for Science Journalists. They had their annual meeting in San Antonio. In National Association of Science Writers, maybe, N-A-W, N-A-S-W, I think. That, that sounds right, yeah. So I spoke to them. Um, but other than that, I personally have not. But I think that my colleagues have more contact with journalists than I do. I tend to be more the person who is um, doing the analyses and, and writing the reports rather than um, out there visiting people in Congress. And well, to their I, credit, the New York Times did publish these six maps and the, down to the granular county level about what people believe. Um, I want to put it out again that Facebook, we're doing a quick poll, and so if anybody wants to play the game, <laughs> alarmed, concerned, cautious, disengaged, doubtful, or dismissive. Where do you fall on that spectrum? We'll give a little uh, poll at the end and see how we did, or we'll, we'll announce it next week. Um, but before we wrap that up, um, Connie, I wanted to get any more results. You, you say you've been studying this for a while. So what's shifting? And to what do you ascribe the shift? And is it going in the right direction? Those are three questions. Um, things are going in the right direction. The shifts that we have seen over the past couple of years have been largely among Republicans, that they have become more uh, accepting of the reality of climate change and more um, uh, accepting that it is harmful. Something where we have not seen much change, and this, is, uh, this holds um, across the spectrum, Republicans and Democrats, just over half of the population understands that humans are causing climate change. And um, that, that, you know, that we have not been able to move with any kind of communication initiatives. That has proved to be a, a difficult view um, uh, among uh, the public to, to shift. Well, there's an emotion there. It's called guilt. And uh, mm -hmm. most people do not want to feel that emotion. It's very uncomfortable. And it, because there aren't as many things as you would want to do about it, it's an easy, comfortable escape from feeling the shame and guilt uh, as a species that we're undermining our own future. So that's a tough one. It'll have to get some real experts on the job to see what exact words or emotions, because really we've learned a lot about how emotions move people's behavior a lot more than simple facts alone will do. Hey, well, I got a line on that. I, I first broached this on TV this past week. You'll be getting the link for that show that was filmed over in Gilroy. Uh, but I'm saying, hey, enough hand-wringing already. It's time for ass-kicking. <laughs> so there it is. It's in the can. That's my line, and that's what I say we should. That's an emotion, a positive, productive emotion that we should all be going after. Hey, we can do some, some stuff about this. Let's find out what it is, the most effective, interesting things to do, and do them. Social influence sounds like the biggest one. And we're talking about your kids talking to the parents and those uncomfortable conversations at the dinner table and Thanksgiving, even though you don't want to have those people on your Facebook, don't unfriend them yet. You might actually have be moving the needle on this attitude about right. what's happening to us. So Wait, that, that's another way to convince people is through reaching out. Rachel, one other thing that I wanted to say about that, if you are, if you do feel uncomfortable talking about it, you can still have a very great impact because social network analysis shows that behavior is contagious. And so if you, every time you get out and ride your bike, other people see you on the bike and it becomes more likely that they'll get on their bikes as well. The um, research that's been done on network analysis shows that our behaviors influence not only our friends, but our friends' friends, and even to a small extent, our friends' friends' friends. Um, so our own behavior, if we act on climate, we influence the people around us. There's research showing that if I get solar panels on my house, it increases the probability that others in the same neighborhood will. So we can influence people, even if we don't want to talk about it, we can influence them by what we do. We've been speaking with Connie Roser Renouf. She is a researcher at Yale and George Mason University. And I'll let Joe have the final question. We just have about a minute left. Yeah, yeah. well, thanks a lot. Uh, Connie, uh, actually, I was going to launch into the uh, the oddball stuff segment at the end of the show here, uh, but uh, it, should we still? 
do well, something. Well, no, we can we can say thank you, Connie, yeah. because we've gotten so much from your discussion, and I just want to thank you for um, doing what you do, because without it, we won't really know where we are and where we're headed. So thank you for sharing your research with us. We've put links to some of your work on our Facebook page, and thanks for spending the time with us this afternoon. My pleasure. Hey, and Connie, since we're talking climate, I wanted to ask you, how's the weather up there in Arcata? She's about five hours drive north, or maybe six hours drive north of Santa Cruz along the coast. How, is it foggy or is it clear and sunny up there? Um, we live right on the coast, and so it's the answer to that is almost always it's foggy um, and, and overcast and cool. But there's a little sunshine out there right now. All but right, well. I don't well, enjoy the rest. Where it gets warm. Enjoy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you well, so much. And we'll enjoy the rest of your afternoon, Connie. Bye-bye. So because of that fog, she may not be able to enjoy the thing I'm going to now invite all of our listeners to do. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but I found out to my amazement and delight this week that you can still do this just for another week or so. You can actually see the planet Venus in broad daylight. I'm talking noon, 1 p.m., 11 a.m., and uh, it's it's going to be getting dimmer and dimmer as it moves farther and farther away from us as it's going around the sun in the in the next couple of weeks. But uh, on a clear day like we have today in Santa Cruz and yesterday and any place that has a nice clear sky, if you look up about two fully extended hand widths, you know, from tip of thumb to tip of little finger, two hand widths at arm's length to the right of the sun, pretty much at the same height in the sky as the sun at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning, you will see this brilliant little dot which is a planet in the broad you know the broad daylight the bright blue sky so check it out see if you can do that and uh well last week we asked a question which i'm gonna have to kick down the road that was the one about why do stars twinkle but planets don't you can think about that one a little bit longer but uh i think we twinkle uh, twinkle little planet i don't think it goes like that really. right right it's the planets the... don't twinkle no. but the stars do well we, uh, we won't know i always thought it was because the atmosphere is getting in the way but then if the planets don't twinkle then the atmosphere is still there that really blows yeah, my theory that's completely. true it is the atmosphere is why stars twinkle but hey the planets are outside the atmosphere too so what else is going on with that that's something for you to think about. Must be the man in the moon's fault. That's really scientific <laughs> now, isn't it? Planet Watch is a show oh. covers all kinds of things, and we're just about out of and time. And speaking of the moon, here's something for tomorrow morning, Monday morning, May, what is it? Well, in Columbus, 20... Ohio, it's next week, Joe. <laughs> oh, okay. But anyway, May 22nd, tomorrow morning, you are going to see, Get your, drag yourself out of bed. Before dawn, or at dawn, when it's beautiful blue twilight, you're going to see Venus right next to the moon. Crescent moon with Venus right next to it. Spectacular. You've been listening to Planet Watch. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. Joe Jordan, keep an eye on the sky. Thanks for listening. Thank you.